0: You are listening to the Dark Fantastic Podcast. Welcome to this new episode of the Dark Fantastic Podcast, Pocket Edition, uh, which is a shorter episode, but which still has all the things that you love about the podcast. In this episode, I'm gonna talk about Hitchcock, funky music, and a lot more right after this
1: death is a man in black and he has gone insane slaughtering the innocent only x an amnesiac who wakes up to find his wife dead beside him can stop him now x along with a band of heroes hunting the man in black have to embark on a terrifying journey through the cursed town of crofton and into a haunted house filled with secrets to find the only thing that can stop death from a kale the number one best-selling author of bad dreams coffin x a terrifying novel of dark fantasy and horror now available on amazon
0: i want to talk a little bit about hitchcock because hitchcock is the reason why i became a filmmaker it's that simple Ever since seeing Psycho on television when I was a teenager, I was hooked. The music, the mood, the camera work, the horrific ending of that movie, uh, it all had a great impact on me. Um, I'd already fallen in love with movies way before that, but it was Psycho and Hitchcock that cemented the idea and made me know 100% that movies are where my heart is, basically. Because um, since I was a kid, I loved movies and cartoons and TV shows like MacGyver and uh, Murder She Wrote and all that stuff that, you know, played on TV when I was very, very young. And I'd always loved and was always fascinated with stories and storytelling. And I always loved the idea of books and, and magazines and comic books. And I had some trouble reading when, when I was young. Um, so when I wanted my, my storytelling fix. I basically went and watched movies either on television or rented movies on, on VHS or uh, went to, to see them uh, in the theater. But as time went by, I discovered that of all the storytelling formats that were available to me, movies were just the thing for me. Uh, it, it just I, I loved them. And after watching Psycho as I mentioned as a teenager uh, I caught it on TV I think uh, on cable for the first time and after watching that and being blown away by you know how stylish and and how loud I think uh, Hitchcock's style is uh, it's very high impact and I think that's why it appeals to You know, budding filmmakers uh, Because his stuff is so powerful And he, he's such a showy filmmaker Although he's very elegant But his stuff just jumps at you In a way that sometimes You know, very showy Sometimes a bit more uh, You know, understated But Hitchcock is Hitchcock, and his style is just, you know, incomparable, incomparable, and you just know, uh, after watching maybe a maximum of 10 minutes of any Hitchcock movie, that this is Hitchcock, you know, at work. So, after watching Psycho for the first time, I tried to get my hands on any Hitchcock movie I could find. Um, North by Northwest played on TCM all the time, uh, and I managed to find VHS copies of The Birds, one of my favorite Hitchcock movies, and Vertigo. Uh, I found the uh, I, I, I tracked down a copy uh, that uh, that I found in London uh, of Vertigo, which was the remastered version wi- with the uh, with the remixed soundtrack. And also, that movie blew me away with its mood and its 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 gloom and its its you know dark psychology and the cinematography and of course the music. But it was around ten years later that I found a couple of uh, DVD mega packs, you know that these you know cheap boxes uh, that like has. 20 movies, you know, uh, most of them public domain, if not all of them uh, on DVD. And uh, I managed to track down a copy of a couple of, of these, uh, you know, mega packs. Uh, I ordered them online, and uh, one of these mega packs had many of Hitchcock's earlier films uh, made in England, like Sabotage, uh, The Lodger, and Blackmail. And I devoured all of them in a matter of weeks because it was just a revelation and it was just amazing to me that I suddenly had access to all these movies, all these Hitchcock movies, these, you know, hard-to-find classics. And I just, you know, played them. uh, I think I played one movie a day just to be able to absorb them. But although I was very pleased and I was very grateful to find uh, those copies of of these old Hitchcock movies. None of these earlier films of his, uh, the black and white ones made in the the 20s and 30s, really grabbed grabbed me and I never really, at the time, fell in love with any of them. But recently I had a chance to watch some of them again. And it was like seeing them for the first time. Uh, Like Number 17, which uh, Hitchcock made in 1932, a low-budget thriller with a very wry sense of humor, and which, despite its faults and the limitations of the time, is one of Hitchcock's most enjoyable and atmospheric films, of that era, it is just such a fun film, and he has so much fun with it. The characters are very likable. The mystery is just so appealing. Um, the mood is great, and uh, it's somewhat known uh, number seventeen for the miniature work at the end of the movie with the, with the with the train wreck. But just the whole movie is just is just really really fun. And it's very short, it's just over an hour and uh, I highly recommend it for people who haven't watched it or who would like to discover, you know, how Hitchcock grew as a filmmaker. And I also watched The Lady Vanishes, of course uh, a much more well-known Hitchcock movie uh, from 1938. Which I found boring and bland when I first watched it, about ten years ago, maybe a little more, but which I now find super fun, and I find it very, very well made. It's a kind of proto blockbuster, you know. That has, uh, you know, it's it's painted on a big canvas. It's like it's it's like an. You know, a large-scale uh, showy thriller uh, aboard the train. And it's b- it basically, you know, establishes the template for the big-budget studio thriller that would come, you know, 10-20 years later. Uh, but as always, Hitchcock was always a forerunner and he was always a pioneer. And it's one of the most entertaining uh, movies uh, about murders or mysteries on trains so it was just you know s- such such a fun film when i watched it again i really i really appreciated it now and i also watched some of the silent classics like the lodger which in my humble opinion is a masterpiece and the first film to showcase hitchcock's mastery of camera and mood and hitchcock considers it and he mentioned this uh, many many times that he considered it his first real movie he had made uh, a couple of movies before that and and had co-directed and and you know uh, collaborated with other filmmakers from germany uh, on on other films but he considers uh, he considered uh, the lodger his first movie and it's easy to see why because it includes a lot of techniques, um, he would continue to use for decades, like the point of view shot or the subjective camera, and moral ambiguity um, and sympathy for the accused, uh, and sometimes even sympathy for the villain which is something Hitchcock uh, would later be you know, known for, or Hitchcock movies would, would later include uh, many, many times uh, that motif. And I also watched uh, Downhill, uh, a, a very, very uh, obscure Hitchcock movie nowadays. And like The Lodger, it also stars uh, Ivor Novello, uh, a friend of Hitchcock's and... Uh, very uh, famous and renowned composer and Downhill also I also found it surprisingly enjoyable and polished for such an old film made by a very young Hitchcock and which doesn't include his usual plot elements of murder, mystery uh, set pieces it is, it's just uh, basically riches to rags, drama, very typical of the time. But as I mentioned, it's surprisingly compelling and surprisingly moving and surprisingly polished. Uh, I'd, I had a chance to watch uh, to watch one of the, um, or the remastered version of that movie. And it's, it was just a revelation to me uh, because Hitchcock ha- hasn't really made a lot of quote-unquote straight dramas. This is basically one of his few straight dramas. Uh, So it was surprising to me that it was so compelling and so entertaining. But my new favorite is Blackmail, which was made in 1929 and is the first British made sound picture in history and Hitchcock started this movie as a silent movie and then uh, he and his uh, crew uh, decided to transform this movie into a sound film when when the technology became available to them which makes for a, a sort of a bumpy ride technically because, of course, most of the film, or, uh, you know, a huge part of the film was shot as a silent movie, so there are long, so there are tricks that Hitchcock uses, of course, that someone who, who knows about filmmaking, and I think most of today's audiences will discover, basically, and will see the seams you know, where the, the silent parts and the talky parts come together. And he uses a lot of tricks to, you know, re- tr- to, to, to transform or, or remake the scenes without reshooting them. And that makes for a fascinating watch on another level. But on an entertainment level, the movie is such a compelling one. And it's a very enjoyable thriller a, a very tense and dark um, story and hitchcock does with with a couple of locations and a very short running time relatively speaking he does more with these elements than what he and a lot of other filmmakers would later be able to achieve with ten times the budget and ten times more advanced technologies than the ones used in that movie. So rewatching Blackmail now again I watched a remastered version of it. It's just a very well made movie and of course it's a it's a it's a trailblazer and uh, I appreciate it now a lot more and I'm more and more starting to reappreciate and really uh, understand the, the the value of these earlier black and white uh, Hitchcock movies made in the 20s and 30s in England and i just wanted to share that uh, you know rediscovery uh, with you and the next time you think of watching a Hitchcock movie Give one of these golden oldies a try, you might be surprised how much they have to offer a movie buff. The
1: English lady, where is she? There has been no English lady here. What?
0: There has been no English lady here. But it's ridiculous.
1: She took me to the dining car and came back here with me. Who went?
0: I came back alone.
1: I know there's a Miss Froy. She's as real as you are. That's what you say, and you believe it, but there doesn't appear to be anybody else who seen her. I saw her. I think that isn't Miss Froy. Stop the train! Listen, everybody. There's a woman on this train, Miss Froy. Some of you must have seen her. They're hiding her somewhere. Do you hear? Why don't you do something before it's too late? Please, please. I know you think I'm crazy, but I'm not, I'm not! For heaven's sake, stop this train! Leave me alone! Leave me
0: alone! I'd like to talk a little bit about a guitarist that a lot of people don't know. Um, Let me backtrack a little bit. Uh, I've been a fan of... Brian Ferries for more than 20 years now. and ever since I discovered his music on VH1, I think 20 years ago, uh, I watched uh, the video of, of Roxy Musics more than this. and uh, it just it, I, I'd never, you know heard anything like, like that song and that kind of music. So I fell in love with with his music starting with with that song and I spoke about uh, Brian Ferry's music before on episode 5 of season 1 of the Dark Fantastic podcast and you can check out that episode. I always find uh, Brian Ferry's music to be moody, polished and sometimes even sublime and one of my favorite albums uh, of his is Taxi from 1993, uh, which is an album of, of, uh, of covers of American songs, uh, most of them soul uh, classics like uh, I Put a Spell on You and Will You Love Me Tomorrow. And Ferry's arrangements and vocals are the main reasons behind that album's uh, you know, magical and and lush atmosphere. But one of the secret ingredients to the Brian Ferry sound of that period is the, the guitar work of the late, great David Williams, one of the best funk and rhythm guitarists in the history of rock music. He was uh, a prolific and much sought after session musician playing for Michael Jackson, Madonna, uh, Brian Ferry as I mentioned and and many many others and he has put out uh, I think a couple of albums uh, of, of, uh, of, of his own music and his work with Ferry is especially good Providing Ferry's music with a muscular, groovy bass, and and that's bass B A S E, not not bass B A W S. And and that bass that he provides for for, for Ferry's music is just unforgettable and and technically very very impressive. And uh, I want to play a clip of Williams on uh, MTV's Most Wanted. I think this clip is from 1993. I'm not sure, but it's uh, but it was uh, during uh, Williams' stint on uh, on Michael Jackson's Dangerous tour. So I think it's 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 1993, and it was also the time when that show uh, MTV's Most Wanted, which uh, is, is a great show, and a lot of a lot of it is available now on YouTube. Uh, that show also at that time was was at the height of its popularity and I want to play a clip of Williams uh, who was featured as a guest on, on that show talking about uh, his work.
1: Welcome to MTV's most wanted friend of the stars. We have David Williams who's on the road with Michael and he's been with Michael Jackson for some 12 years. Yeah. How have you seen the guy change, David? Um... I haven't really seen a change. Okay. Uh, not personality-wise, not at all, no. no. What, what, how did you first get into it? Were you, were you, did you have your own band or something? You know, well, I did. I had a record out called um, Don't Hold Back. He heard the record on the radio and said, I want that guitar sound. And he called me and said, David, would you come and audition for my new album, which was Off The Wall? And I went... Yeah, sure. You know, I didn't. I, I didn't think it was him for real. Of course not, man. Yeah. So, and he called, and, <clears throat> and so he told me show up at um, at uh, the studio at such a time. And I went down, and it was, and it was he and Quincy, and I was like, oh, God! <laughs> it really is them. Oh, it yeah. really is. You know, so it was one of those. Were you lucky, but did your did your parents give you a guitar? You know, like Elvis when you were four. My or parents something? gave me. A, my brother, my brother gave me my. First guitar when I was about eight. Wow! When I was eight years old, and nine by the time, by nine years old, I was on stage performing. It was a gift. It was, it was a natural thing, you know. It was just natural. I just did it. Let's have a look at you doing something. Yeah. What, what's your What's your favorite um One of my favorites riffs. is uh, <clears throat> um, uh, the first thing I did. This is the first song I did. If I can play it now, it's the first song I did in the studio with Michael for my audition. For the audition? And it was Rock With You.
0: If you want to hear more of Williams' work, uh, listen to uh, Brian Ferry's uh, album Taxi, or even better, uh, his album Mamuna from 1994, uh, a forgotten masterpiece of an album. I'd like to end this episode with a clip from a live performance of Brian Ferry's version of I Put a Spell on You. It's a terrific performance and features an amazing backing band that includes Nathan East on bass, Robin Trower on lead guitar, and the great David Williams on rhythm guitar. Thanks for listening and please join me again for another episode. You've been listening to The Dark Fantastic Podcast.